The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Wednesday edition of the PFT PM Podcast, August the 8th, 2018. One day away from the start of the preseason. Well... The preseason already kind of started last Thursday with the Hall of Fame game, but week one of the preseason. And every time I mention that during PFT Live, Stats pumps his fist like he actually cares about the preseason. The one thing you should care about in the preseason is this. Guys getting injured. Your favorite players from your favorite teams, your favorite players from your fantasy team. You want to hold your breath when those key players have the football in their hands. Think about it if you're a Texans fan. You're fascinated to see Deshaun Watson come back and play, but you're also going to be scared because you saw Deshaun Watson go down last year. Remember that feeling when we heard about Deshaun Watson tearing his ACL non-contact? Now, he had damaged it four days before against the Seahawks. He told us that at the Super Bowl, but still, we don't know what's going on inside those joints. We don't know when one false move is going to get a guy injured for the full season, and we know it's going to happen. There's this random quality to it. It's this bizarro lottery where we know lightning is going to strike and it's going to derail the chances of one or more teams. Look at how many guys last year were gone for the year. And there's a dynamic in football where you're quickly out of sight, out of mind. David Johnson, the number one fantasy football option going into last season, without question. If you had the first pick, you took David Johnson, period. Week one at Detroit. Wrist injury, he didn't play again that year. And we forgot about him because you plug someone else in. Your focus shifts to someone else. There will always be 256 regular season games. There will always be 22 players on the field at any given time. And we will always focus on the players who are playing. It's just the way it is. So if you have a vested interest because of the team that you've been rooting for since you were a small child or the gambling angles that you may be playing or the fantasy football elements that you're interested in, there's reason to pay attention to the preseason, primarily because you want to get through it with those key players healthy and ready to go. By the way, on today's edition of the PFTPM podcast, I'm doing something that I'm now committed to doing once a week, and that is the one-hour, me-only therapy session, primarily for me, where I talk as long as I want on any topic I want to talk about, and I answer your questions. And I'll try to answer all of them. Manageable load of questions so far today. We've had days where there have been a hundred of them. Kind of hard to get to all of them. But I'm going to try to answer all of them today. I'm going to go over some of the news that's come out since we finished PFT Live this morning. That's how this all got started in the first place. Well, actually, it got started during my four-week mandatory vacation last summer, and I was bored, so I did an afternoon podcast so the people who subscribe to PFT Live would have something in their feed and I'd have something to do. Then it became last season a way to put a button, put a bow on the 
end of the news day for the six, seven, eight hours between the end of PFT Live and the taping of the PFT PM podcast. Now, more recently, and I like this, and please feel free to provide your format on Twitter. Not your format. What's the word I'm looking at? Feedback. Started with an F, close enough. Feedback, and there's an A in there somewhere, so I got two of the letters right. Provide your feedback on Twitter on the new format of the show because we've been trying to be a little more structured most of the time. And one of my goals is to do one-hour interviews. And I appreciate anyone who's willing to give me an hour to have this conversation. We've done, I don't know, so many of them now. I forget how many we've done. And I love it. Had Terry McCauley, the new Sunday Night Football rules analyst, on Tuesday. Full hour. It was great. Shereen Williams of PFT, the 2018 Dick McCann Award winner. Full hour on Monday. It was great. We're going to have Chris Ballard of the Colts at some point. It's been hard to get it scheduled because kind of a busy time of year. But he said, I'll give you as much time as you want. We just have to get to the point where we can start it. Once we start it, we'll have a full hour and maybe more with Chris Ballard, the Colts head coach. And the reason I like doing that, when we do PFT Live, you're so constrained by the clock. And any radio show, I don't care who it is, other than... Howard Stern, who's on Sirius, and they take a break, but it's like once every three hours they take a break. And I don't listen to it a lot. There's a lot of the stuff on there that, I don't know, maybe if I was younger, I'd think it was funny. But his interviews are incredible. And I'll never be as skilled as he is. He's the most skilled interviewer I've ever heard. But I've learned some things from listening to him. And one of the things I've learned is you need to have time and you need to have a comfort level. And part of it is when you're interviewing somebody that you know well, like when Chris Sims and I do this and we go for an hour, it's just two guys talking on the phone. And you get a sense of when to ask him the right follow-up question, what to draw out of him, because I know other things that may overlap and, hey, this is a good time to ask him about this. But having that unlimited time where you're not worried about how many minutes until I have to take a break how long until the fact that I delayed the floating break is going to leave me with a 90-second segment before the hard break? See, every radio show has at least one hard break per hour. The NBC Sports Radio clock has two of them because there are two updates per hour. And the NBC Sports Radio sports updates, right at the top of the hour, and then at 27.50, something like that, it's a hard time. And you either stop talking or you keep talking. But either way, the moment that hard break comes, it's done. And I've told this story before. I had no concept of the hard break the first time I sat in for Dan Patrick. And it wasn't in his studio in Connecticut the first time. I was actually at a radio studio up the road in Morgantown. And I knew what the clock was and I knew when the breaks were coming. But I didn't understand that the hard break every hour wasn't something you could go a little early on. I thought, you okay, hey, this is my deadline. As long as I color within the lines, I'm fine. I didn't realize you had to color all the way up to the edge of the line. Now they give you that music bed and you'll hear that. If you listen to radio, you'll hear the music start. And the music start is the 30-second warning 
to when the plug gets pulled. And if you do it long enough and if you listen to it, you'll, you'll know when the plane is landing. And I remember from doing Dan's show, how much time I had until it went. I know now from the NBC Sports Radio music, I know how to do it. And you try to hit the post, right? You want to take it right up to the last second. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. It's gone. Anyway, that's a waste of your time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for wasting your time. See, having an unlimited supply of time can be a bad thing too. But back to my original point. I like doing the long interviews because I don't have to constantly be looking. Okay, I've got five minutes in. What question can I ask now? And and should I hold that question for later? And then you ask a question and it elicits a long answer and you never get to the question you really wanted to get to. And it drives you crazy. When you have an hour, you tend to check every box. So I love doing those interviews and we're going to be doing multiple of those every week. And hopefully we'll get more people to consent to give us an hour of their time. And I, look, an hour is, I mean, if somebody asked me, can I have an hour of your time? I'd be like, no, I'm too busy to give you an hour of my time. Are you crazy? An hour on a weekday? No. So I appreciate it when anyone does. And look, I, I don't know. I guess I would do it. I would do it if it was a high quality podcast that was going to give me a chance to talk in depth about things and feature someone who asks me the right questions and is fair to me and is an interesting person to talk to. So basically anyone other than me, I would say yes. Not enough people said yes to watching the Hall of Fame game on Thursday night. I saw the ratings today from Sports Business Daily. And I don't want to freak out about it yet, but last year there were 8.25 million who watched the Cowboys-Cardinals game. And this year, it dropped to 6.73 million. And if my math is correct, and it rarely is, that's a 17.8% decline. And it was the lowest broadcast audience, lowest three-letter network audience for the Hall of Fame game since 1998, when 6.3 million watched the Buccaneers and the Steelers on ABC. Now, look, the Cowboys deliver. And I think that's one of the reasons why the number was a lot higher last year. What's exciting about the Ravens and the Bears? The biggest reason to watch that game was to see Lamar Jackson. And if you hung around until the second half when Lamar Jackson played after a couple of series, you saw everything you needed to see. So I'm not going to freak out about it yet. But I do think the NFL needs to be concerned about it. You know, the knee-jerk argument to the reduced NFL ratings is, well, ratings for TV are down across the board and they're down for other things a lot more than they're down for football. Okay, fine. But, you know, at some point, the medium is dead. The medium is a shell of what it once was. So how do you deliver in real time live TV coverage or streaming or however in the future the video of the game is going to be made available? How do you deliver it? if the long-standing accepted method for doing so no longer performs. I remember, what was it? 10, 15 years ago, there were two things that delivered a massive live TV audience, the NFL and American Idol. And beginning about 2009, that's when the NFL stood alone, and there's nothing other than the NFL that delivers that huge audience consistently. But the audience is shrinking. And it's not like the country is shrinking. People have too many other things to do. And I think the NFL hopes that 
even though they keep their distance from wagering. I think they hope that in-game betting is something that will tie people to the NFL a little more strongly over time. So I'm not freaked out about it. And, you know, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony was down from $1.18 million to $1.17 million, so that's really nothing. But at the same time, it was a pretty good class. And I was surprised it wasn't bigger. Ray Lewis, Randy Moss, Brian Dawkins, and say what you will about Ray Lewis, I was interested in seeing what he had to say. Would have been a bigger audience if Terrell Owens had been there. That's one of the reasons why I think they want to squeeze these guys to commit to showing up. They don't want to do this again. It's not good for business if one of the Hall of Famers is doing his own thing in this town where he went to college. Browns rookie receiver Antonio Callaway showed up as a first stringer on the team's depth chart. You know, he's got a checkered past, which is why he was available in round four. Some people think he was the most talented receiver in the draft. A car that he was driving had marijuana in it. He says it wasn't his, that somebody put it in there. And now officers who smelled marijuana in the car found a gun part and ammunition along with a small amount of marijuana. And of course, he's saying none of it was his. And I don't know, maybe this works. Maybe it's credible. The problem is when you are walking into the NFL with red flags and strikes against you, you don't want this and you don't need it. So John Dorsey, when he was the GM of the Chiefs, took a chance on Tyreek Hill, and it worked out very well for the Chiefs. Now Dorsey's taking a chance on Antonio Callaway, and we'll see if it works out for the Browns. And it may just be that it's the Browns. It may just be that no matter what they do, there's something fundamental about that franchise that isn't going to change anytime soon. Or at least until there's new ownership. That brings me to Hard Knocks. I had been bored with Hard Knocks, and I really don't like the aspect of Hard Knocks where employees of a company are brought in and informed that they're being fired on camera. I don't like that. I've had a problem with that for several years now. And I remember when the first All or Nothing debuted. Actually, it wasn't the first one. It was the second one. It was the Rams. First season was the Cardinals. Second season was the Rams. During the season, Jeff Fisher was fired. And there was some compelling video of Fisher informing the team that he'd been fired. But my argument was, hey, if it's fair to show the coach meeting with the player and telling the player he's fired, why don't we get to see the owner meeting with the coach and telling the coach he's fired? That would be compelling. Why didn't we get to see that? There's a double standard there I don't like, and I just don't like the invasion of privacy. I don't like Vontae Davis sitting in Jeff Ireland's office, finding out that he's been traded and shell-shocked. I need to call my grandma. Shell-shocked. I don't think that's something we should see. Now, I'm fascinated by what we saw in the opening episode of the new Hard Knocks. And the Jarvis Landry speech, okay, I think it was overhyped a little bit. I wish I hadn't known about it. Like, if I hadn't known about it, then maybe I would have thought, wow, that was something. The thing that made me say, wow, that was something, was that awkward moment between Hugh Jackson, the head coach of the Browns, and Todd Haley, the offensive coordinator. And, look, I know that Browns fans don't want to hear this, 
Browns fans are looking for any reason to be hopeful about their team moving forward, I'd be the same way. But I think we've gotten a little glimpse of what's to come. Because let's set this thing up. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you see it. If you have seen it, I think this is a fair characterization of what occurred. Joe Sheehan, the VP of Player Health and Development, was running down the list of who's going to practice, who's not going to practice, and there was a sense that certain players have scheduled days off for maintenance purposes to avoid the injuries that I talked about earlier. You don't want those injuries to happen, so you don't drive the guys into the ground like Bear Bryant and the Junction Boys. So after Sheehan says his piece and some of the non-coaches are ushered out of the room, that's when Freddie Kitchens, the running backs coach, in a very tactful and diplomatic way, raises this issue of, hey, is there, can we just like put the guys in uniform and then it'll look like me saying, you know, they're not practicing today. I'm not using them today. And that gets back to the Jarvis Landry speech because he was adamant, be out there and practice unless the hamstring is off the bone. So I think that there's a concern that giving guys days off sends a negative message to the guys who don't have days off. And they all need to be grinding. They all need to be working. They all need to be preparing. And yes, guys are going to get injured, but so what? You accept that guys are going to get injured and you move forward with who you have. And everyone's going to be ready. They're going to be callous. That's one of the things Jim Harbaugh likes to say. You want to have a good callous. You don't want to rest too much. It's football season. You go out there and you practice and you play football. I mean, that's the attitude. And Kitchens was trying to engineer the discussion in that direction. Hugh Jackson quickly shut the door. And that's when Todd Haley tried to kick it open. I have an opinion on it, Haley said. We need to get so much done. And I know I said that to you and we joke about it. But if we live in our fears, I mean, our team has to get mentally tougher and be able to fight through the shit that we've got to fight through. We've got to change this drastically. If we've got guys that haven't done shit sitting around doing nothing, I just don't know how we're going to do it. Now, not as tactful as Freddie Kitchens, a little aggressive, and I could see Hugh Jackson being a little threatened by that because Todd Haley, a more successful head coach than Hugh Jackson. I think Haley, 19 and 26 as a head coach with a playoff appearance, Jackson, 9-39, and 1-31 and and over the last two years. And Jackson begins to respond. Haley starts to make a reference to Joe Shaheen. Jackson says, let me finish. But the problem is, Jackson wasn't just finishing his point as part of a back and forth that was going to lead to some meaningful dialogue that maybe could lead to a compromise or cause Jackson to say to himself, you know what? My way hasn't really been working. Maybe there's a different way. Maybe I shouldn't be so stubborn about the things I've done over the last two years that have contributed to the Browns winning one game in two seasons. Because that's one of the arguments I got on Twitter after we posted the link to the story. Oh, what's wrong with having a healthy discussion? There wasn't one. Now, part of it's on Haley, because I think there is a way to make the point without causing a coach who is definitely going to feel a little bit antsy about having his potential interim replacement right there. Remember last year, Hugh Jackson didn't have an offensive coordinator. He had some 
cockamamie argument, cockamamie is not used nearly enough, that if there was an offensive coordinator, then that guy would have been blamed for the poor performance of the offense, and he wanted to be the one blamed. I think the truth is this. If you had an offensive coordinator, and your defensive coordinator is Greg Williams, who's still, from a head coaching standpoint, radioactive thanks to the bounty scandal, I think if you have an offensive coordinator, your chances of getting fired during the season are increased. So now he has one. And the way Todd Haley expressed himself, I don't think was the right way to set the stage for the discussion that needed to be had, this philosophical discussion about exposing guys to the risk of injury in the name of getting everyone prepared for the season. But Hugh just didn't want to talk about it. He went straight to the I'm in charge card. And I'm not a big fan of that as a first resort. The only time that I would play that card is when you reach an impasse and you agree to disagree. I really don't like that phrase because I don't know, I just don't like it. But you do get to a point where there's nothing more to talk about. Okay, I say up, you say down. I understand what you're saying. You understand what I'm saying. Now we have to make a decision. At some point, it goes back to rock, scissors, paper. I mean, every once in a while, when we're talking about what we're going to do on PFT Live, we get to a point where I refuse to give in. I think it's better for the show to do this. I'm getting nudged to do that. And at some point, I have to say, ultimately, it's my show. And I have to do what I think is right. Now, when I do that, and I'm hoping I've done that tactfully in the past, Part of the problem is I've got to sell it, right? When you're doing a show, you got to believe in it. If you're doing a segment that you don't believe in, the audience is going to know. And I don't want to have to fake it. It's so much more stressful when you have to fake it. I want authenticity. I want real. And I don't want to listen to somebody who I don't think believes what they're saying. And I don't want to be that guy who is just saying whatever to get through the five minutes before the segment ends. So... What was my point? Oh, yeah, this whole thing about playing the I'm in charge card. He went to it too quickly. And Peter King and I were talking about this on PFT Live today. He admired the Browns for not pulling the plug on that scene from making its way into the first episode of Hard Knocks. I look at it and I say, this is just another example of the Browns being the Browns. The Browns aren't sufficiently astute to connect the dots between how that scene can hurt them down the road. Because here's what happens now. Now, we already were kind of on notice that maybe Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley is nitro and glycerin. But now it's been flagged. It's been underscored. Here it is. They've mixed the ingredients and the bottle is already starting to shake. And they're zero and zero. What happens when they're zero and five again, if it gets to that? And I looked at the schedule. <laughs> it's not an easy schedule for the Cleveland Browns. I'm not a big fan of the whole, that's a win, that's a loss, especially right when the schedule comes out. But now that the season's starting to come into focus, I was talking to somebody in the league about the situation today, and the prediction is that by Halloween, Hugh Jackson will be gone and Todd Haley will be the coach. And after the season, it'll be somebody else who's hired to take over the Browns by John Dorsey. Now, 
for my purposes, I think that it's more realistic to look at the bye week. Week 11. That's when the change would be made. Because that's when you have extra time to get the new coach up to speed, to get the players comfortable with what's going on. But let's 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 play the 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 win loss game. Week one, Browns host the Steelers. They gave the Steelers two tough games last year. And maybe they'll surprise the Steelers right out of the gate. Le'Veon Bell shows up, he's rickety. Maybe the Browns can win it this time. Are you going to bet the Browns in that one if you're in a state that allows you to wager? I don't think you are. Maybe with the points. You do, if there's a straight-up wager, you don't not know. 0-1. At New Orleans, 0-2. Jets at home on a Thursday night. Let's give them that one. I'm feeling charitable today. Jets, Browns on a Thursday night with Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield both watching. Maybe Darnold plays. Either way, I'll give that one to the Browns. They're 1-2. They've already exceeded their win total for all of 2017. Congratulations. At Oakland, week four. I still have a concern about the John Gruden-led Raiders, but I don't think the Browns are traveling cross-country and beating the Raiders in September. One and three. Ravens come to town October 7. One and four. Chargers come to town October 14. And although that's the one team the Browns have beaten in the last two years, I think the Chargers are going to be keenly aware of that fact. One and five. At Tampa Bay, October 21. I'm tempted to give them that one. Should I give them that one? Is that reasonable? The Browns would go down to Tampa Bay and win to avoid going one and six. All right, let's give it to them. Two and five. At Steelers, two and six. Chiefs, two and seven. Falcons, two and eight. By week, goodbye, Hugh Jackson. I don't know, is two and eight enough? Hey, I've won more games in the first 10 weeks than I did in two years combined. You should extend my contract. So anyway, I think that as the, the losses mount, the tension increases. And, you know, I, I, here's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by this scene. Because part of it is, okay... Haley had to know the cameras are on. They know the cameras are on. Did Haley do this deliberately? Did Haley essentially fire the first shot in a coup? Or did he think, you know what, I'm going to speak my piece. There's no way in hell this is going to end up being part of the first episode of Hard Knocks. There's no way this is going to happen. This can't happen. They're not going to put, surely they're not going to put this in. And now that it was put in, What's going to happen the next time Hugh Jackson is talking to the media when he, when Todd Haley talks to the media? How do they how do they talk their way out of this one? And I know they'll try, and there'll be people who accept it. But my point is this: you're never getting along better than you are when you're zero and zero. Well, you will get along better if you win games, but you're always better off then than when the adversity comes, and the adversity for the Browns is going to come. So. If it's a little awkward now, it's going to be a lot awkward later, unless somehow they end up winning a lot of football games. But I really was overall impressed with Hard Knocks because I do think some stuff got in there that maybe wasn't in the best best interest of the Browns for it to emerge. I mentioned the Raiders. Boy, it sure looks like Martavis Bryant is having a hard time in Oakland. John Gruden called him out over the weekend. James Jones, who played for the Raiders, spoke to Greg Olson, the offensive coordinator of the Raiders, and Olson told Jones 
that Bryant just simply hasn't learned the playbook. Now, I don't know that Olsen intended for Jones to talk about that, but it may just be part of the effort by the Raiders to put pressure on this guy to figure it out. They gave up a third-round pick to get him, and they they treated that third-round pick like found money. I didn't like that attitude. They traded down from 10 to 15. They still got the guy at 15 that they would have taken at 10, supposedly. It's good to sell that. And they picked up a third-round pick. Well, you, you don't. That, that's not like loose change. It's still a third-round pick that has value. You don't just take a flyer on somebody. Oh, hey, hey we got a free third-round pick. Let's just throw it away. And there already was the report that they were bracing for another Martavis Bryant suspension. I just wonder if the Raiders believe that the hammer is going to fall on Martavis Bryant. So they're, they're just distancing themselves from him. So when it does happen, it won't be perceived as a major impediment to what the Raiders are trying to do. Because that, that report's still out there. The only follow-up was that Martavis Bryant supposedly hasn't failed a drug test or failed to show up for a drug test, but there are still plenty of other ways you can run afoul of your treatment plan, the substance abuse policy, once you're in stage three. And when you've been banished for at least a year and you get reinstated, you're in stage three for life. You're always in stage three, which means one false move and you're gone again for at least a year. Some colorful comments from Alvin Kamara about the Minneapolis miracle. I can't even read this. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. A lot of F words in there. I'm still not ready to to go F bomb on this show. Although Chris Sims is. We'll get Chris back at some point. We have fun when Chris is on. All right, I probably should transition to some some questions, as I promised. I really didn't spend a whole lot of time preparing for this one today, and it probably shows. But, you know, there's some things to talk about, things on my mind that I've been thinking about all day, and this gives me an outlet for it. All right, let's start with PFTPM Posse. If the Raiders are considering trading Khalil Mack, aren't Gruden's comments that Mack isn't much of a difference maker hurting their ability to get top value? No, no. I mean, first of all, he didn't say that. He did kind of downplay the notion that Mack is critical to the defense because the defense wasn't great without him. The question in my mind, the fundamental question, can the Raiders afford to pay Khalil Mack? Not will they. Can they? And that notion bubbled up over the past week or so. And Paul Gutierrez of ESPN.com, they had each of their, what do they call it, NFL Nation writers who were assigned to a given team identify the one player to watch for a possible preseason trade. And Gutierrez picked Mac. And he mentioned that back in March, GM Reggie McKenzie, when asked about signing Khalil Mack, joked about, hey, do you have an extra $100 million you can loan me? And it's not about cap space. We always go straight to cap space. Cap space can be handled. Cash flow can't. You either have the money or you don't. And if you're going to sign Khalil Mack to the kind of contract he wants, let's say he wants $20 million a year with the first three years fully guaranteed, which I think is roughly what Aaron Donald is looking for. And I think both guys, I think one of the reasons why neither's gotten done is I think neither one wants to be the first one to go because the other guy's going to try to get more. But let's say it's three years, $60 million fully guaranteed, and, you know, some non-guaranteed years on the back end. You have to take 
the bulk of that money and set it aside now. That's that stupid funding rule that was put in place years ago to help protect players against owners who couldn't afford to pay later. You make them essentially pay now. And what it does is it causes teams to be reluctant to fully guarantee future money because they don't want to put the money aside now, or in some cases, maybe they can't. And look, the only team about which we know their financial details is the Packers because they're publicly traded. So, I mean, this is all speculation. I'm not saying the Raiders don't have the money. We don't know. If they want to open their books, then we can see whether or not they have the money. But I think that's a fair consideration. Can they do it? Can they come up with the cash necessary to pay the signing bonus and fund the future guarantees? Can they do it? Or have they lucked into a transcendent defensive player who commands the kind of contract that they just physically cannot pay him? And if that's the case, do you trade him? And then when do you trade him? Gutierrez suggested the Raiders would be stupid not to listen to a first-round pick. I think you get a first-round pick plus because I think you squat on him, he shows up by week 10 to get credit for this year of his contract, and then you franchise tag him next year. You don't have to pay him anything when you tag him. You just pay him during the season. See, teams have a lot more cash flow during the season because that's when the TV money comes in. The Buccaneers do guaranteed salaries. They don't do signing bonuses because then you just pay the guys when your money's coming in from the TV networks. So you wait until next year, you franchise tag him, and you sit back and wait for somebody to sign him to an offer sheet, and you take the two first-round draft picks. And I think it's easy to justify giving up two first-round draft picks for Khalil Mack, especially if you are near the bottom of round one. Because you give up that pick plus a future pick, and you get a guy that has already proven he can get it done instead of rolling the dice twice on rookies who may or may not ever work out. I think it's a no-brainer. So I think that's what the Raiders should do. Wait him out. Let him show up at about week 10, tag him next year, and then wait for somebody to sign him to an offer sheet. All right, let's see what else we have here. PFTPM Posse, the gentleman who runs that account, very proud of the fact that he saved a snake from getting run over and killed, a 5-foot, 20 to 25-pound snake. That is an impressive creature. So, yeah, good, good on you for saving the snake. Although, why would you save a snake? Reverend Markworth chimed in, why would you save a snake? I save all living things when I can. Well, and, and it's, you know, snakes like eat, uh, what do they eat? Like uh, uh, rodents and, and other pests. It's good to have them around, except when they bite you. At PFTPM Posse, we guess the godfather of the NFL, John Mara, kept his Giants from getting in trouble, even though the entire organization bragged about rookie guard Will Hernandez and his five OTA fights that were a national storyline, even on NFL Network which Mara owns a percentage of. You know, I'd forgotten about that. There were some accounts of some scrappy chippiness coming out of the OTAs, and if that happens, that's usually a sign that there's contact that crosses the line. Now, the thing about those investigations, they do a good job of keeping them quiet until they're done, and the punishment is announced. Now that the off-season program's over, there's really no reason to rush to announce it. And I can recall times during training camp where teams were dinged for off-season workout violations. So we could still hear something about that. I need to thank you for the reminder. See, one of the reasons I like doing this format, it reminds me of things that I need to do and it gives me ideas of things that I need to do. PFTPM policy, should I invest in a PS4 just to challenge you at Madden 19? If I do, maybe honorary PFTPM policy member Mutt Guru could give me some tips or even train me. Yeah, go ahead. Get a PS4. Now, look, that doesn't mean I'm going to actually take the time and play you. 
I've yet to play anybody online that like I know through this. No one has my my gamer tag. Is that what it's called? Gamer tag? Or is there a different name for it? I don't necessarily want people to know who I am. Right? I kind of like being able to, you know, operate incognito in my PFT PS4 world. So let me think about that. I was thinking the other day, like, and this is so foreign to me. I first became aware of this dynamic four or five years ago when one of my two young nephews had a cell phone device and I thought was playing the game Minecraft. Remember the Minecraft? It looks like Lego world. And, oh, you're playing Minecraft? No. Well, yes, you are. I see it. No, I'm not. You sure? I see that you're playing Minecraft. No, I'm watching someone play Minecraft. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And now this whole thing has developed into an industry, esports, where people actually watch other people play these games. And my son and I have talked about this on the podcast before because he's not into that, but his friends are. I've gone down to the barn and I thought they were playing Fortnite. They weren't. They were watching someone play Fortnite. So I guess what I'm saying is, wouldn't it be kind of fun to do a uh, Madden game through, is it Twitch? I think there's a way to do it. I need to investigate this. Maybe what I'll do, maybe I'll figure out a way to challenge someone from the PFTPM posse on Twitch. Now you're going to have to have PS4, I assume, or access to Twitch to watch it. But maybe we'll do that. Maybe that'd be fun. Maybe I'll do that once a week, just for shits and giggles. I have to figure out the technology. If anybody knows how to do that easily, just throw me a a response on Twitter and tell me what I need to do. But I, I think that if I took five minutes to figure it out, maybe I would begin the process of figuring it out. Leading with the helmet. If Aaron Rodgers, Kyle Shanahan, and John Gruden were trapped in a burning building and Sims could only save one of them, which would he choose? Without question, it would be Aaron Rodgers. Without question. Kyle Shanahan would still live on in the form of his initials on Chris Sims' leg. John Gruden, I don't think Chris Sims would try to save. Aaron Rodgers, in Sims' mind, the greatest quarterback and not just that, greatest football player of all time, I think that Chris Sims is saving Aaron Rodgers. Terry Gensler wants to know if that's the perfect medium rare. That, man, that looks really good. I could do without all the scrapings on the plate in front of it. Just give me the photo of the steak. That is that is a very well done medium rare. No pun intended. You know what I've done? I used to be partial to the filet. I started cooking New York strips recently. It takes a little more patience. But man, if you get that right, I've finally gotten to the point where I can cook a New York strip to the same quality that I get when I go to a nice restaurant. Now, a lot of restaurants, I would not recommend buying the New York Strip. They'll do the filet fine. They can't do a New York Strip. But I've, I've gotten to the point where I can get a New York Strip right around medium. And this looks, is this medium rare? Yeah, it probably looks medium rare. Yeah, and if, you know what? Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how good between medium rare and medium is. And I was always, like, grown up, like, it's a well done. I don't want, you know, blood. I don't want to eat blood. I'm not a vampire. And then you try medium well once, and it's like, oh, man, that's really tender. That's really good. And then you get a little daring, and you try medium. It's like, man, this is really good. So before long, I'm just going to be gnawing on a raw steak. All right, what else do we have here? Leapers 500. How poorly can we now assess John Elway's drafts? Obviously, free agency has been great, but as to quarterbacks, Brock Osweiler, Paxton Lynch, Trevor Simeon, 
Chad Kelly, hardly an honor roll of passers. Does he need help? Should they have gone quarterback instead of Bradley Chubb? I think John Elway is just waiting for the next John Elway. And the idea that Chad Kelly could be the number two quarterback is a great sign for Elway that he got a guy who maybe could be groomed to become a starter with the last pick in the 2017 draft. But it's an indictment of Elway the prior year when he traded up to get Paxton Lynch. Remember, the Cowboys were going to take Paxton Lynch. He'd be playing right now for the Cowboys if Denver hadn't made their move. So, I look, Elway's won a Super Bowl, and I was very skeptical when they hired him because he didn't pay the dues the way that other scouts who rise through the ranks and become general manager do. And he was out of football, at least NFL football, for 10, 11 years. I thought this was a mistake. It's not like anyone else was offering him a job. This was a Broncos connection. And he proved me wrong. But as of right now, look, the Broncos, they're in danger of having their first back-to-back losing seasons for the first time since the early 70s. Losing seasons. They've they've had some 8-8 eight and eight years sandwiched up against a, a losing year, but they have not had two in a row losing seasons since the early 70s. It's been a team that's been very relevant and competitive for decades. And the heat's on this year. And I thought that Vance Joseph was out primarily because there were too many games last year where it felt like the team quit, and that all goes right back to Vance Joseph. They gave up too easily. And I think part of that is, you know, when you're used to being that good, it's almost like doing the rage quit when you're playing Madden. If you're just kicking the crap out of everybody and then you're down 14 nothing in the first quarter after you've had your way with everyone you've played, you just, like, you, you, you know, you mash the power button and turn it off because you can't believe this is happening because it's all come so easily, and now all of a sudden you can't do anything. And I think that may attribute some of the, the spirals that they ended up in last year. The Real Forno, thoughts on Madden 19 so far? I've enjoyed it so far, although I will admit this. On the ultimate team function, it was a lot easier to get the players I wanted through the auction before all these other people had it. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like on Friday. See, I got an advanced copy of it. And what happened was Alex and I were in Minnesota when it came. When we got home, I started playing it. And I started working my ultimate team up from a 65. And I had it up like in the low 70s. And, and then it all went away. And I thought there was some glitch or something. Well, no, it was like a, an early advance weekend where it's just review purposes. So I had to start all over again at 65. But I've been building it up. It's at 79 now. And for me, for whatever reason, that resonates for me. Even though I know that it's an ultimately worthless exercise because you try to make your team better and you do it through solo challenges. You do it through different features they have available. You play a game online. I had my first game online yesterday and I won it. And it's just a stupid little feeling of mini euphoria that you carry around for 10 minutes. And if you lose, you're pissed off for about 10 minutes. It's kind of fun. And it gets me through my workout and I enjoy it. So anyway, I think this game is an improvement over last year. I think it's more realistic. One of the things about Madden last year that I didn't like, if you would throw a ball into traffic and it would get batted around, you would never make the catch of a tip ball. And rarely would the interception happen of a tip ball. It happened via an interception more often than a catch. And it's just, it's not realistic. 
because NFL caliber receivers, when the ball's getting batted around, they're going to catch the ball from time to time, and it never happened, and now it's happening. And now, like, you throw a ball into a tight window, and a guy's more likely to catch it. There were a lot of incompletions last year that are catches this year, at least so far. Maybe as you start encountering tougher teams, it's harder to complete the passes. But the other thing, too, is the players who are slower, they are slower. When I started the Ultimate Team, they gave me Pac-Man Jones as my kick returner, and his speed rating was like in the upper 60s or low 70s. And it was like he was running in mud. It's like Tom Brady is a kickoff returner. So I, I like it. Look, my concern every year when the new Madden comes out is they're finally going to make one where I say, this sucks, and I don't want to play it. But for the past three or four years since I rediscovered it, and I started incorporating it into my, my daily cardio routine so I can you know kind of eat whatever I want, I've enjoyed it, and every year it's been a little bit better than it was the year before. And I think so far this year, I think it's a lot better. I think it looks a lot better, and I feel like it plays a lot better. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. All right, at Recliner QB, how can agents, players, when negotiating contract, make it more player versus GM owner rather than player versus team since fans don't have loyalty to GM owner like they do the team? Is that feasible? Call them out for being cheap, unloyal, etc. You know, that's a great point. Here's the problem. The agents have to continue to do business with the GM or the coach. And the more prominent the agent, the more clients the agent has, and the harder it becomes to maybe place your your client with that team. There's a line you don't want to cross. I remember when the Postons, Carl and Kevin Poston, were notoriously ruthless and over-the-top negotiators, and nobody wanted to deal with them, and then nobody wanted to deal with their clients. So there's a line you don't want to cross. And, you know, the problem is this. The fans are always going to line up on the side of the team. And I'd love to see that change. I don't understand why. I thought that this sensitivity we now have toward player health and safety would get people to be more sensitive to the the value of a player taking a stand and getting what he can while he can. But ultimately, the fans just want football. And they think between the millionaire and the billionaire, the millionaire is more likely to cave and show up and play. And they blame the player in that setting. And I think a big part of it, too, is to the average person, they're all rich. It's just degrees of rich. Who cares? You're all rich. What are you whining about? You're getting paid millions to play a game. That's such a misrepresentation of what it is. It's not a game. You're walking out into a stadium with 70,000 people who hate you, who are booing you, and you've got millions watching who are going to scrutinize every move you make. And you've got media members who are going to criticize you if you screw up. And you've got so much riding on it. And your family's interests are riding on your ability to continue to make money at a high level. It is a... It, look, I, I read the Steve Smith article about the depression that he dealt with throughout his playing career. I mean, think about the pressure on these guys. Because once you climb to the top and you get to where you are making good money and enjoying success in the NFL, every year, there's a whole crop of guys who are going to try to take it away. Every year. You don't just settle in. Every year, they're bringing in new guys. And inevitably, they're going to say, all right, you're done. See you later. You can't do it like you did. Or for what we're paying you versus what we're paying him, we're just going to go with him. Good luck paying your mortgage. Good luck taking care of your family. Good luck paying your bills based upon a lifestyle that you have built up to match your income. You better make some changes. Hope you saved your money. Hope you listened to Carl Nassib and found someone who will give you 10% return on your money. 
Mike likes dirt. Given the Landry speech on hard knocks, can you compare and contrast your gripe that Randy Moss didn't always give it his all versus Hugh Jackson's leadership and coaching being the problem on the Browns? Didn't Randy use his only leverage available to get off teams he thought sucked? Well, it was only one team he was on that really sucked, and that was the Raiders in 2006. I mean, I look at it this way. You either give a shit or you don't. You either have pride in your craft. You either are committed to getting the most out of your God-given skills or you aren't. Jarvis Landry's point last night to his teammates was, you get out there and you work. You take pride. This isn't easy. It shouldn't be easy. You got to put something in to get something out of it. Now, I, but for the awkward scene between Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley, there was a subtle but unmistakable disconnect between all the talk of changing the way things are done versus the fact that the coach responsible for the way things are done is still there. And I'll tell you what, I got to give it to Hugh Jackson. He would have been a hell of a lawyer. Very persuasive. Great salesman, too. He managed to convince ownership that he had nothing to do and no responsibility for the train wreck of the last two years. I tried to come up with a good example for this earlier day on PFT Live. I said it's the equivalent of being in the kitchen and having the, the, the cake explode. And somehow, Hugh walks out with an apron that is entirely clean. How does that happen? And then you had Jimmy Haslam say within the last week or so that it's fair to view this as Hugh's first year. Really? 1 in 31 says otherwise. Look, and I want Cleveland fans to have the same enjoyment of the NFL experience that fans of every other team has. They haven't been to the playoffs since 2002. They've had one winning season since then in 2007 when they were 10 and 6. I mean, I like it when fans who haven't tasted that excitement of being in the postseason get a chance to do it. It's a fun week when you're getting ready for a playoff game. It's fun to still be relevant and alive that time of year. And to go that long without without even being relevant to the playoff chase. They don't even get a week in December where they get to look at the standings and and. Oh, if, if we win this game and the Bengals lose and this happens, hey, we're going to make it to the play. They don't even get to do that. You know, all this talk about, oh, we want to win the Super Bowl. We hear that from every team. Oh, yeah, and they, 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 they. What you want to do is be relevant past Thanksgiving. If you're relevant past Thanksgiving, more often than not, you're winning. Because your fans care about you in December. The kids want the jerseys of your best players. You're selling merchandise. People are engaged. They're willing to come out to your stadium when it's cold and spend way too much money on food and and beverages, hot or cold. People still buy cold beer when it's 25 degrees out. That's what you want. Browns haven't even had that. The Cleveland fans deserve it. But you know what? I'm trying to help them get there. I mean, somebody's got to be realistic about this team. Hugh Jackson should not be the head coach of the Browns. And I know that means we're not going to get an hour with Hugh Jackson anytime soon. But do you want me to bite my tongue? You go 0-16 in the NFL, you never a head coach again in the NFL. That should be a rule. That should be in the rule book. That's a clear, bright line rule that we can all get behind. I think it's applied to Rod Marinelli for the last 10 years. I think it should apply to Hugh Jackson and anyone else who ever goes 0-16. You should never be an NFL head coach again. And I think that, I, look, it would be the ultimate Browns thing. If they get to the playoffs with Tyrod Taylor and Hugh Jackson, keeping Baker Mayfield on the bench and keeping John Dorsey from hiring his own coach. I just, I'd be shocked if that happens. Leapers 500. In a criminal 
or civil legal proceeding, can a tweet be mens rea? Can you elucidate with some clarity on how that concept is proven to a jury? Mens rea is just the intent. That's a Latin phrase that means something. I don't know what the two words mean, but you have to have an evil mind. It may be evil mind. There has to be that element of intent. There aren't many strict liability crimes. We hear about strict liability in connection with the PED policy. For example, you don't have to intend to cheat. If you just happen to ingest something that is a banned substance, you're liable. Now, a lot of the cases that end up in civil court, they don't require intent. There are intentional torts and there are unintentional torts, negligence. You're driving your car and you get into an accident because you were texting. You didn't intend to get into the accident. You didn't aim your car at the person. For crimes, typically, there's an element of intent. And I think I know what you're referring to, and I want to keep this apolitical because football is supposed to be the refuge, but one of the points that I've seen made, and I think that this is a very valid point, a lot of the things that are happening publicly on someone's 53 million plus follower Twitter account, these are things that ordinarily would happen privately. And the fact that these things are happening publicly almost makes it incomprehensible that these things are being admitted to. It's the equivalent of someone taking out a billboard that says, I plan to rob a bank tomorrow at 3 p.m. And then the day after, oh, hey, by the way, I did rob the bank yesterday at 3 p.m. And one of the people involved in this, one of the spokespeople, this idea that, well, obstruction of justice doesn't happen in the public square. It happens privately. No, it just, I mean, it can happen publicly. It's just very rarely does anyone ever do it. So I think that anything you say in any format, in any setting, anything you say can and will be used against you. And if you tweet something that is either evidence of a plan to commit a crime or violate someone's rights under the civil laws, or after the fact you tweet something that constitutes an admission that you committed a crime or violated someone's rights under the civil laws, it doesn't matter that it was a tweet. I don't even, I don't even know why that's a debate. Can we please set aside our partisan leanings and just be like reasonable human beings? And I don't understand the mindset that allows someone to think that you can just kind of wash your hands of something you said because it was a tweet. Like there's this weird duality where there's who you are when you speak publicly and then there's who you are when it's 6 a.m. and you're engaged in whatever thought process you want on Twitter. It's still you. It's not two different people. And the fact that it's a 140 or 280 character format, it doesn't matter. At least it shouldn't matter. And I have a feeling that... Regardless of how it all shakes out, you know, there's a lot of noise. And I think part of it is that the media coverage really is skewed both ways. You've got the networks that are incredibly anti, and you've got the network that is incredibly pro. And I think that the person who is handling the investigation is going to provide us all with a strong dose of sanity and reason. And I hope that the final report is written in a way that explains everything 
in a very commonsensical, reasonable way, and the chips fall wherever they may. But this idea that tweets don't count, that words don't matter, when you have such a huge collection of contradictory words that not any one of them stand out, I, I don't get it. It defies all logic and common sense to me. All right, I said way more about that than I wanted to. Leapers 500, why are you trying to get me into trouble? Meanwhile, my phone shut down. I got to see if there's any other questions here. I said I was going to answer them all, but I've already been going for an hour. Red Zone Alk, a Red Zone Alk, get it right. Does Stats on Fire have enough leverage in his contract to consider a holdout of his own? No, 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 he doesn't. No, that would be like the 1987 strike. And we would bring in Keanu Reeves. And uh, the only difference is there'd be no picket line to cross. We'd just move on with someone else. Terry Gensler, if the Browns have a bad season and Hugh Jackson gets fired, what does that mean for Baker? That, that Look, here's what I believe. I believe that Hugh Jackson will be gone and that John Dorsey already knows who he's going to hire and that John Dorsey knows whoever he's going to hire wants Baker Mayfield. That's what I believe. I don't have any facts to support that. I just believe that. At Leapers 500, do you still hear sexist grumbling from old school type coaches, players, management types, journalists? Shereen Williams is proof of how backward and meritless that view is. I don't hear that stuff anymore. I really don't. I don't think I ever did in this business. I think it's more from fans. Fans can be hateful and nasty and awful. Anytime Beth Mowens is assigned to an NFL game, look at the things people say. So I think that it became a non-issue for the people inside the business before I even got in the business. The Real Forno asks, the Alliance of American Football Combines are coming up pretty quickly. Have you heard of any big names going to be there? I haven't. They, they announced like 100 guys they've signed. I mean, anybody they've signed now currently isn't in an NFL training camp. So I think they're, they're building their foundation with guys who can't even get on a 90-man roster. I mean, 90 times 32, that's nearly 3,000 guys that are out of the picture for now. So they added their first 100 guys who can't even get into the NFL maximum roster. So I, I, I think that it's going to take some time to get to the point where we understand what quality they're going to have. At the Real Forno, who are you most looking forward to seeing in week one of the preseason? I mean, probably Saquon Barkley and or Baker Mayfield. The top draft picks, the skill position players, do they look the part? Do they pass the eyeball test? And I'm not sure Lamar Jackson did last week for the Ravens. I, I was hopeful he was going to look like he did at Louisville. Maybe it'll take some time, but I'm anxious to see. You know, we get caught up in the big-name rookies. How do they look? I, I New veteran players with new teams, I don't care as much about. I want to see if the rookies look the part. Recliner QB, if the Browns are saying that the ball is in Des Bryant's court now, and that's true, does Des really think that a contender, one-year contract he likes is going to materialize? He's known to struggle with the mental side of the game and from a lack of chemistry with his quarterback, so get in camp. Look, I've probably made this point on PFT Live. I know I've made this point on some of the radio spots I've done because Des Bryant comes up from time to time because he was a cowboy and it moves the needle. He's been on one team his entire career. He's been in one offense his entire career. He's played one position in that one offense on that one team for his entire career. The X, the left end. If the quarterback facing the line of scrimmage, the guy lined up wide left, that's what Des has always been. He doesn't move around. He doesn't know any of their offense. He doesn't know any of the coaching staff. So he's going to go into a new team, new players, new coach, new offense, new terminology on the fly. I wish I had more examples. The only thing that I resort to is 
the concept of changing the tire on a moving car because that's exactly what it is. And the car is going faster the deeper you get into training camp. I mean, think about it. Okay, let's pick a contender that would want this. Let's say the Giants call up now out of the blue. Let's say that I don't even want to mention the name. Let's say somebody gets injured and the Giants say, we want Des Bryant. So Des has to move to New York, New Jersey, show up for practice in the middle of the preseason, get a playbook, figure out what Eli Manning likes, figure out how the plays are called, figure out how the plays are run, figure out what the terminology is, figure out the timing, figure out all the stuff that we hear about from March until late July. All that's getting crammed into a very small box on the fly. Do you really think Des Bryant's going to contribute? Do you really think any veteran receiver is going to show up out of the blue and contribute under those circumstances? I don't think so. I don't think so. And at this point, I think his best bet is to wait for an injury. The only way he's going to have real leverage is if somebody's desperate. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They're going to go next man up. Because they're going to have people in camp, people already on the team who know the offense, who know the quarterbacks, who know the coaching staff, who have their apartment or house and are ready to go. I, I, think, I really think what should have happened is the Cowboys should have cut this guy right before free agency started to give him a fair chance to land somewhere because I think the Ravens would have signed him. But with each off-season practice, mini-camp practice, training camp practice, preseason game, as each one evaporates and is never coming back, it's going to be harder and harder for Des Bryant to get up to speed. And I don't know what contribution he can make at this point for anyone. Dirtbag1327, what sort of season will the Raiders have with possibly no Khalil Mack? Issues with Martavis Bryant and Donald Penn. Look, I've, I've, I know that John Gruden showed up in Tampa Bay 16 years ago and won the Super Bowl right away, but they had a dominant defense. The offense needed a kick in the ass, and he provided it. I think the Raiders could win the division. I think they could finish fourth and everything in between. And for a guy who's been out of it for nine years, and I, I, just, I still don't think Derek Carr... I know Derek Carr was praising ownership for hiring John Gruden. I think once the losses start to mount and the pressure increases, I, I think it could it could go in a bad way for the Oakland Raiders. Recliner QB, if it only takes four to six weeks for a defensive coordinator to figure out a player, why was Dak successful for a full 16-game season before supposedly having sophomore slump last year? Shouldn't they have figured him out during the rookie season? I don't think there was anything to figure out because what was happening is rookie season. By the way, that question was from, if I haven't said so, Recliner QB. He had so much time that there was nothing to figure out. Ezekiel Elliott was running the ball. The offensive line was dominant. And when it was time to pass, Kevin Gilbride explained this last year on PFT Live. Dak Prescott had so much time that you go for your first read, you go to your second read, you go to your third read. You can find the safest option because you have time to operate. If you give a quarterback enough time, he's going to find somebody open. So... What happened last year was Ezekiel Elliott showed up a little heavier. I mean, when the guy pulls up his shirt and shows the world his midsection, you get an idea of whether or not he's in shape. He wasn't in shape. He had the six-game suspension hanging over his head. There were injuries on the offensive line. It made it harder for Dak Prescott. So, you know, in the normal sense, if you have a guy who's having success in a passing game-driven offense, after four or six weeks, there's enough film to figure out what he likes to do, and you can take it away. The Cowboys' offense was so good, and it was so reliant on the running game that there wasn't anything to take away. 
Fittison Kane, even with the cap going up every year, do you see a point where quarterback contracts reach a level closer to the days before Luck got his deal? I, I mean, no, I, I think that, that we're now in an age where quarterbacks are going to keep pushing the bar higher and higher, and there's a crop of young quarterbacks that have to get paid. Russell Wilson's going to have to get paid again. I, I think there was a period of time where people believed that the salary cap wasn't going to spike every year. Remember that notion that the salary cap was going to smooth? I think a lot of contracts were done under the false assumption that the salary cap was going to smooth, and it didn't. It spiked. That's one of the reasons why Aaron Rodgers is stuck at $22 million and Matt Ryan's at 30 Stephen Wise, 89, wants to know if I keep in touch with Eric Casilius. I, I haven't heard from Eric in a long time. We had a couple of years together on the Pro Football Talk afternoon show. He had a show on NBC Sports Radio that I used to do once a week. Stephen first heard of PFT and PFT Live while listening to Eric Casilius' show on NBC Sports Radio. Last I heard, he's got a local show down in Orlando, but I haven't been in touch with him. Really, I haven't spoken to him at all since he left NBC. Reverend Markworth, do the Browns seem to still be doing Browns types of things with the showing of Hugh Jackson having to play the I am in charge card to make the other coaches shut up? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have taken that question. I've already answered that, but yes. At PFT Toupee, I know you're going to use getting me adjusted as an excuse, but please continue reading our questions. At the CJ Newman, can we get Mark Sanchez on the podcast? I'm sure he can pause from his pizza delivery gig for a minute. Is he not on a team right now? And and that sounds mean-spirited, but that's a reference to a couple of things. First of all, remember that day back in, I don't know when it was, June? I just picked a random name and mentioned it to see if people were listening and people spat Mark Sanchez back to me on Twitter. And then also, I don't know who came up with the idea that we should call the chicken and pepperoni pizza from Pizza Hut the Mark Sanchez, but it was because of that whole thing that he was the name that, that I picked out of the blue that one day. At the CJ Newman, how's your Madden Ultimate team? I'm doing the solo challenges. I'm at a 79. I'm going to go work on it here as soon as I'm done. It's time to work out, and it's time to try to get it up to an 80. At the CJ Newman, did you watch The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and why is John Travolta the best actor alive? I didn't love The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I thought it was okay. I don't think... Are you, are you being sarcastic? Reverend Markworth, Laquan Treadwell, a bust or wait and see. I'd give him one more year. I think he's going to get some reps. He's going to get some chances behind Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs. They really don't have a clear-cut number three. I, I think that uh, we're, we'll see. We'll see. He was drafted for a different offensive coordinator and a different quarterback. They wanted a big-bodied guy. They wanted a big target because Teddy Bridgewater wasn't as accurate as maybe they wanted. It's a different ball game now. But, you know, they're trying to make some chicken salad here, and we'll see. He had 20 catches for 200 yards last year. only had one catch as a rookie. So, you know, at that rate, I mean, if he's got a 20-fold increase, what, he'll have 400 catches this year. Gabe, 56 life with football back. A couple of my friends have made a bet against each other. Here's the bet. Dak Prescott will have 5,000 passing yards or more, and Dak will have 1,500 rushing yards or more. What's your thought on this? Good, better, no. I would bet against that. 5,000 passing yards for Dak Prescott and 1,500 rushing yards for Zeke. Uh, Give me the under. Give me the under on that one, please. Let me know where I can lay that action, please. Is it lay that action or play that action? i got to learn these betting terms. Recliner QB, is there any way that players... Where the NFLPA can, could have fought back against the helmet rule changes. Do unions have any input into their working conditions or job requirements, especially changing this much and costing players? I I don't know that the union can keep rule changes from happening like that. I don't think those rule changes have to be collectively bargained. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. 
I'm going to make a note here. I really am. Look, I actually have a pen. I'm going to make a note. This is fascinating audio. Uh, check NFLPA regarding helmet rule. Because if I just say I'm going to remember it, I know I'm going to forget. But I will check. I'm not just humoring you. What else do we have here? On tour forever anymore, NFL field trips coming up, or would you bring a flow or is school about to start? Yeah, that, I think the, the trip to Minnesota was the only one we're going to pull off before the start of the season. And Alex heads back to school later this week. we got to figure out when we're going to do the Fridays with a flow podcast. He's got classes on Friday. So I don't know what we're going to do. we got to figure that one out. All right. I probably need to wrap it up. There's a few more questions left, but I need to, uh, I, I need to, I need to actually get something to drink here. I've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, probably longer than you wanted to hear me, but I appreciate you listening. We'll be doing this again later in the week. We're still trying to get Colts GM Chris Ballard scheduled. We've been hit or miss because, again, he's kind of busy. I think we're going to have Ryan Tannehill on Friday's PFTPM. There may not be a Thursday edition of the program, but we're going to continue to try to book. And, and Tannehill's not going to be a full hour because he's, he's he can't give us a full hour during training camp. We'll get him for 15 minutes or something like that. We're going to keep trying to book the one-hour podcast. If you have any people you'd like us to try to get, if you want to give us some ideas that I can steal, throw me a, a shout on Twitter, and we'll take it from there. Thanks, as always, for your support of the podcast. Should I throw out a random name? Should we do this? I mean, because this has been one of the longest ones we've done in a while. So let's see if people have made it all the way to the end. All right, I got the record and fact book, and I have to get in touch with the folks at the NFL and ask them for... Um, the new copy, and hopefully they're still making the hard copy. I really don't want the digital file. How about this one? 2007 first-round draft pick of Washington, LaRon Landry. Mention his name, and I'll know that you actually cared enough to listen to the full one hour and 15 minutes. Thanks, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you again soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.